0: Welcome to part three of the Rosa de Venti extravaganza here on the Years of Lead Pod, where everything, and I mean everything, must go, go, go! All right, so here's a quick recap from the previous episode. Investigations triggered by the confession of Nazi Stahlhelm leader, Gianpaolo Casucci start closing in on what increasingly looks like an extensive conspiracy to overthrow the Italian Republic. Police first arrest Sandro Rambazzo and Sandro Sedona in a blue fulvia brimming with guns and ammunition, as well as maps and propaganda for the national movement of public opinion. That bust leads them to Roberto Cavallaro, a young fascist union organizer and military magistrate, who starts to talk about an elaborate network of active duty military veterans groups and civil society organizations with above and below ground operations to subvert the slide towards communism. This operation, known as Rosa de Venti, has its base in Verona's military barracks and involves the active participation of a former NATO general who had been in charge of the Psychological Warfare Division as well as support from sectors of Italian military intelligence. As the investigation proceeds, the magistrate Giovanni Tamburino becomes increasingly concerned going so far as to write to the president of the republic to alert him to, quote, the gravity of some facts that emerged during the criminal proceedings. Tamborino notes that, quote, from various evidential sources, the existence of an occult organization composed of elements belonging to the armed forces has been indicated, in clear contrast with the rules and principles of the current constitution. Now, Cavallaro is only around 24 years of age, but he's young and he's energetic. He had been an activist with the Catholic Trade Union, rising to become the provincial deputy secretary of the Verona section. But he found the hot autumn of 1969 disquieting, and when the Catholic and Communist Trade Union started to converge, he rolled over. As an anti-communist, he thought the Convergence was a Trojan horse for communist power, so he and many of his comrades in the local Verona section went over to the fascist trade union, the Chisnal. Among the fascists, Cavallaro was immediately recognized as a man with talent. He's introduced around to some important fascist party officials and brought under the wing of an artillery major operating out of the local barracks. After investigators ultimately track Cavallaro down, he starts singing like a canary about this military man from the barracks in Verona who brought him under his wing. The guy's name is Amos Spiazzi, and he made Cavallaro into his kind of protege, ultimately giving him this shady military position of magistrate with access to secret bases. So the progression of the investigation went like this. Porta Casucci goes to the cops. The cops arrest Rompazzo and Sedona. Then they take down Cavallaro, and that leads them to Spiazzi. I don't know if you remember this from the beginning of the first episode on Rosa de Venti, but Spiazzi was the guy who delivered the keynote speech at the cemetery of Costermano during the Stahlhelm ceremony. He was very plugged in, and in fact, it's fair to say that Spiazzi was pretty much the leader of Rosa de Venti a group based in Verona tying civilian paramilitaries to military-top brass and reactionary politicians in league to overthrow the government in order to thwart a slide to communism. See, Spiazzi had been involved in the Borghese coup. Spiazzi's group, the Rosereventi in the Veneto, then had been built off of the previous failed attempt by the black prince, Junio Valerio Borghese, in December of 1970. It's probable that he inflated his role in the coup a bit, but there's no two ways about it. He was heavily involved in the Black Prince's efforts to overthrow the Republic on December 7th of 1970. So, who was Amos Piazzi? This dark-haired man with a neatly groomed mustache, who looks a lot like an evil version of Freddie Mercury, appeared on the cover of newspapers around Italy. What was behind this energetic but expressionless face? born in 1933 spiazzi was almost 40 years old by the time of the coup attempt and had spent his whole life in verona he was well known in the world of the far right not just by his own activities but because of the fact that his father had also been a reactionary military man almost had been born in trieste but his family moved after a year to verona where his father was based during the war, Amos's dad fought on the Eastern Front alongside the Nazis before returning to Verona and, after the armistice, commanding a unit of monarchist partisans. After the war, Amos's dad supported the Christian Democrats but then turned towards the monarchists in frustration pretty early on. Young Amos rose up through the military ranks in the 1950s and 60s. He joined counter-guerrilla groups and became an artillery officer. Perhaps most intriguingly, he became a commandant of Ufficio E, of the Servizi di Informazione Operativa e Situazione, a three-part intelligence service tied specifically to the Italian army. Ufficio E or E meant land army, whereas the other two were the marina and the aeronautica. Now, Let's pause for a bit of clarification here. One might think, hey, it's not that interesting that Amos Piazzi, the supposed coup master of Rosa de Venti, was part of the army's intelligence branch, but hang on. The Italian secret services were involved in the coup plotting, and Spiazzi's record shows this. So we talked about this a little in the Borghese episode, but I think it's important to go back over how the secret services functioned here Highlighting in particular this time the functioning of the U.S. government and NATO, particularly with an eye to Prince Borghese's Fronte Nacionale. We've gone over some of the material in episodes on Borghese and the Piazza Fontana, so it won't all be new, but the influence of U.S. officials and agencies is really important to understand here if we want to figure out what was going on behind the scenes of the Rosa de Venti. When I've talked about the military intelligence of Italy thus far in this podcast, it's mostly been in reference to just that, the overarching military intelligence, not just army intelligence. Military intelligence was initially the Servizio Informazione Militare, or the SIM, until the end of World War II, when it was reorganized into the Servizio Informazioni Forze Armate, or Cifar, under General Musco. However, Musco was also involved in secret plots associated with the underground Italian Army of Liberty and lost the reins of CIFAR to another general named Giovanni de Lorenzo. You'll remember that the U.S. started supporting the center-left government in the early 1960s, but underneath the support for the center-left coming from the embassy was a tumultuous sea of discontent. Italy's Minister of Defense from 1959 all the way to 1966 was a guy named Giulio Andreotti, and he rejected the idea of the center-left coalition. As Minister of Defense, he would interface between the U.S. Embassy, NATO brass, and the Italian military while overseeing, in particular, the military intelligence. Andreotti had been the protege of Italy's first prime minister, Alcide de Gasperi, so he, in a way felt like the anointed one before him as minister of defense was antonio Segni, who went on to become president of the republic so andreotti thought you know maybe he's destined for a top position of prime minister even though his ideas and beliefs were sort of going out of style the center-left formula always led by people like mariano rumor and aldo moro was opposed to his social conservatism and more U.S.-friendly foreign policy. Of course, Andreotti had friends and sympathizers in the U.S. foreign service. Outerbridge Horsey, deputy chief of mission, stood firmly in the right-wing camp of Andreotti in the Christian Democrats. When he returned to rome in 1959 horsey tried to criminalize the ties to the socialist party that had been built by the embassy's first secretary george lister a devout catholic close to the vatican horsey also intervened to attempt to prevent academics and other figures from bridging divides between socialists and the italian republican party which were promoted in part by Kennedy's brain trust, especially his special advisor, Arthur Schlesinger. Horsey was just one representative of some of the older generation of Italy hands and foreign service experts who searched for younger blood to represent their interests among Kennedy's more progressive idealists. Head of the Austria and Italy desk in the early 1960s, William Knight played such a role, recalling that, quote, There was, in effect, a coalescence of opinion between two different functional sections of the State Department and the CIA, which cut across agency lines. In both agencies, the operators, in effect, were in agreement among themselves on one position, and the intelligence analysts were in agreement on another. To be sure, Kennedy's choice for ambassador to Italy, Frederick Reinhardt, was no softy on the socialist question, but he was easier than Horsey, who was transferred to Czechoslovakia at the end of 1962. But there's another guy coming into Italy that year, a guy named Homer Byington Jr., who had a brusque run-in with the Kennedy brothers in the late 1930s, for which Jack never really forgot him. Byington had been ambassador to Malaysia under Eisenhower, but Kennedy would never give him such a visible post. Instead, some of the old hands shoehorned Byington in as consul general in Naples. And this is a really important position because it's the liaison to NATO's Allied Forces Southern Europe, or AFSouth. So even if the consul isn't as prestigious as the embassy, its formal matters involved things like passports rather than entertaining significant diplomats, it certainly could be wielded for the interests of power if the consul wanted it to be. Byington totally knew this, and in the 1960s, he foisted most of his duties onto his executive officer while availing himself of the company of yacht-riding Neapolitan aristocracy and the top brass of NATO's AF south including his close friend, Admiral James Russell, afs commander commander-in-chief. This is all important because it shows that cracks are starting to appear in the apparatus of the Atlantic Alliance, which will cultivate new networks that aim to subvert and will ultimately aim to overthrow the entire Italian Republic and replace it with a presidentialist system that has a strong executive Obviously, Byington, like Horsey, was firmly in Andreotti's camp. He was born and raised in Naples, though, and had worked for the U.S. government there since at least 1934. He's supremely well-connected, also, because his parents were also political figures in Italy. He kept profiles on political figures in the Democratic parties, but he didn't keep dossiers on the far right. He himself had monarchist leanings, and he was also socially conservative. It's not even clear if he didn't support segregation. It doesn't seem like he had a lot to do with De Lorenzo's plan solo, but it seems as though he would have supported it had it gone through. Although De Lorenzo was head of CIFAR under Andreotti, plan solo was largely an effort tied to the Carabinieri, which he led after leaving CIFAR. That meant that it was an issue not just of the Ministry of Defense, but also of the Ministry of the Interior, where the Carabinieri are housed. After it came out that De Lorenzo had developed this kind of self-coup plot with the help of factions within CIFAR and the Carabinieri, the CIFAR was subsequently reorganized in 1966 into the Servizio Informazioni Difesa, or SEED. The big difference there was that while CIFAR was directly under the Ministry of Defense, Seed would fall under the command of the Chief of the General Staff of Defense, which held sway over the armed forces. This still meant that Seed was in the Minister of Defense's portfolio, but the chain now included the General Staff, which was in 1966 under the control of General Giuseppe Aloya. Again, this is a bit of a refresher, just to add... The way that the US interests intertwined here. Aloya didn't like De Lorenzo and wanted to reprogram the secret services. Despite being a rival of De Lorenzo, though, Aloya was also obsessed with anti communist activity, embracing the use of fascist terrorists to infiltrate and subvert the left in order to prevent a revolution from taking place. So, Seed was used in this way, with agents poised not just to inform on the left and the extreme right but to help the extreme right attack and destroy the left. Under Aloya, the new leader of Seed would be Eugenio Henke, who of course had served under Mussolini until the armistice. After 1942, Henke had been a part of a naval unit that abandoned its post in La Spezia. Henke's unit was intercepted by Nazi minesweepers who opened fire, killing the rear admiral in the melee that ensued, Henke himself was able to survive and stayed in the Allied-supported side as a submarine commander. Henke seemed like a capable enough figure at the head of the newly organized seat, but military intelligence was highly active in psychological warfare efforts against communists and he had agents within subversive groups throughout the country. The apparatuses within the seed used to handle the delicate tasks of subversion were kept secret from most people for obvious reasons. Indeed, for some delicate tasks involving subversion, chains of command were diverted around certain individuals, fostering networks within networks. This brought about what would become known as the parallel seed, a structure that had arguably existed since the inception of CIFAR under Musco, but which really gained a life of its own after De Lorenzo's self-coup plot. In 1968, President Johnson brought in a guy who couldn't even speak Italian as ambassador, and Byington and the old guard felt increasingly surrounded by amateurs who didn't even have to take some kind of competitive exam to join the Foreign Service. Ambassadors were now supportive of Italy's political development towards the center-left, and in 1968, the U.S. Information Agency, which was housed in the embassy, even started to gesture towards the new left. Charged with public diplomacy, USIA circles drew members of the center-left and even some extra-parliamentary left-wing activists to gatherings, discussions, and roundtables, trying to cultivate a sense that Protests are natural in democratic life. At this point, Byington really starts to close ranks with NATO circles. Officers like General James Russell, General Musco, Marchese Emilio, and Mary Avati di Pago. So you have, on the one hand, the pro Andriotti Americans aligned with reactionary NATO generals, the old guard of the foreign services represented in part by the consulate in Naples, and the operators of the CIA. And then on the other hand, you have the pro-center left Americans aligned with the White House and embassy, the younger generation brought into the foreign services during the 50s, the US information agency, and the analysts in the CIA. So there are divisions here that made Italian policy extraordinarily complicated. And when Nixon wins the White House in 1968, it changes things up a little. First of all, it brings considerable support to the pro-Andreotti faction. Thus, Nixon assembles a team that's way closer to the goals and interests of the old guard. He did appoint William Rogers, who supported the center-left in Italy, as Secretary of State, but as ambassador, He puts a former army colonel named Graham Martin in charge. This meant that Ambassador Martin liked to deal directly with Nixon and his special advisor, Henry Kissinger, rather than work with Secretary of State Rogers, because the executive under Nixon did not support the center left in Italy. People like Aldo Moro of the left-wing faction of the Christian Democrats reviled Ambassador Martin, and he started to attract other figures to the embassy, like General Vito Micheli, businessman Pierre Francesco Talenti, and corrupt Vatican banker Michele Sindona. This actually bothered Byington because he didn't want the embassy to start poaching his own associates. So now you still have a split between the embassy and the consul, but now it's more over turf and access rather than strictly political orientation. You also have the chief executive shifting the balance of the split from the CIA analysts who support the center-left to the CIA operators who support the center-right. This would ultimately give Nixon, Byington, and Martin an opportunity to work outside of the oversight of the center-left supporters without openly marginalizing them in his cabinet picks. Henke finished his post at the seat amid the Piazza Fontana f- investigations, which, you know, were rolling down the hill and snowballing into a huge scandal. And his position is filled by a guy named Vito Micheli in 1970. Just like going from Musco to De Lorenzo and from Sifar to Seed, this was another case of moving from the fat to the friar. Micheli is a pretty rough character. He had volunteered for the fascist military in Ethiopia during World War II. He was captured by the English in 1939, and he spent the next six years in a camp for non-cooperators in India. Probably not good times is my guess, but the record of non-cooperation would certainly serve him well in the trials that would ensue. After the war, he was at the NATO Defense College in Rome before taking command of the Army Intelligence, S.I.O.S., in 1969 and then moving to the head of the SEED in 1970. So it's important to note here that Spiazzi, worked under the army's intelligence while Micheli was in charge of the army's intelligence, and then also is said to have worked under the seeds Ufficio E, which is external security. Another left-wing politician, Salvador Allende, was elected to the position of president of Chile in November 1970. Kissinger absolutely panicked and became terrified of something like that happening in Italy with the Communist Party. So, from 1970 to 1973, the Nixon administration gave the equivalent of around $25 million to Ambassador Martin to be divided amongst anti-communist forces. Naturally, $6 million goes straight to the right-wing Andreotti faction of the Christian Democrats, a lot went into political committees within the government for reactionary causes, and some also went to the extra-parliamentary right. This funding was part of Nixon's program to support the Italian anti-communist movement, which had been a reversal from the Kennedy and Johnson administrations that supported the center-left coalition in government. Vito Micheli received $800,000, no strings attached, but he also had controlling access to a lot more than that. There's a lot of evidence that Micheli also participated in the Borghese coup the month after Allende's election, along with people like Byington, a Nixon loyalist named Hugh Fenwick, and that crew of old guard foreign service guys. One of the participants in the Borghese coup later claimed that U.S. officials had spoken with plotters in advance and had insisted that support for the coup would come after it succeeded, as long as Andreotti would be put up to the task of president. This plays into a lot of ongoing suspicions, but it's hard to say whether or not it should be considered credible, and we have other cables that indicate that even the CIA opposed the coup. Here, we have to recognize again that the the CIA was split into factions, and some no doubt supported the coup, but when things were shaking out in the weeks leading up to the coup, there's pretty solid evidence that the CIA as an agency went from not really taking it seriously to opposing it. A lot of people look to the book Legacy of Ashes for the history of the CIA's activities in Italy, and there's a reason why. It's a really good book, it's well-resourced, and it's pretty sensational in its findings. At the same time, we might be able to add a bit of nuance on this point. The author, Tim Wiener, claims that this White House money actually led to the Borghese coup, but that coup took place in 1970, just at the very beginning of the distribution of funds, and it was in the planning stages well before that, Ambassador Martin even sent a telegram to Henry Kissinger in August of 1970, just a few months ahead of the coup attempt, openly opposing it. So even if some money ended up entangled in the Borghese plot, it was likely a more circuitous route than it would appear, and it wasn't deliberate sponsorship of the event on behalf of Ambassador Martin. Also, Legacy of Ashes sort of depicts the embassy as working hand-in-hand with the CIA on the distribution of funds, but Ambassador Martin gained total control over the dispersal of those funds in 1971, against the wishes of the CIA, and a lot of it appears to have gone to reviving the old Comitati Civici under the Christian Democrats, which would make sense because that was the nature of U.S. support to Italy during its most extensive phase circa 1948 indeed evidence suggests that the cia station office in rome rejected ambassador martin's control over the money because they also opposed nixon's italy policy for his part martin nurtured an act of distrust for the cia station chief from 1967 and 1971 seymour russell and his successor rocky stone was not any different in fact Stone was a veteran of the foreign office in Syria and had mounted a failed coup attempt against the Ba'athist regime in 1957, so he was said to be doubly reluctant to participate in such coup plots in Italy. Martin and the CIA may have actually agreed in their opposition to a Borghese coup plot, but it seems the CIA further disputed Martin's usage of the funds towards people like Micheli. In order to get around the CIA, in fact, Martin mobilized the embassy's attaché to the Italian Armed Services and its legal attaché, who was also an operative of the FBI. So here, we see another fine-grained split in the Italian policy between the CIA and the FBI functioning within the need of the embassy to put Nixon's wishes into effect. Hilariously, though, it was rumored that at least one of those proxies was a covert CIA agent. So even while Martin was trying to bypass the CIA with the help of the FBI, he may have accidentally been working with a CIA agent. So where did the money go? Michelli admitted to having used his share of $800,000 to fund some 50 politicians during that three-year length of time and the other monies disbursed by the embassy likely aided in compromising the right wing of the Christian Democrats to the side of subversive organizations and against the center-left government. It's also plausible that the money found its way, through the movement of public opinion, into the hands of people like Rampazzo, Sedona, Rizzato, Cavallaro, and so forth. As well, it should be noted that it's highly suspicious that one of the leading efforts to launch a subversive right-wing street movement was called the Silent Majority, named after a Nixon speech circulated by the Information Service under Ambassador Martin and founded around 1970-1971. The guy who ended up exposing a lot of this and bringing Michelli down was Michelli's own subordinate the head of SEED's counterintelligence department, Ufficio De. General Giannadello Maletti, at Counterinformation, did not really appreciate Michelli's way of doing things, preferring instead a much more upfront way of defeating communism. Interestingly, Maletti appears to have been even closer to Andreotti than Michelli was, who had perhaps started to shake things up a little too much for their tastes. Meletti wanted an upfront reckoning with the center-left that would move the Christian Democrats to the right, not the weird clandestine approach favored by Michelli. So, Mileti reopens the Seed's investigation into the Borghese coup in the middle of 1973, just as the Rosa de Ventis efforts were unraveling. During the course of Maletti's secret investigation into the Borghese coup and ultimately his own boss, Micheli. Maletti ascertains the involvement of groups within the Carabinieri in the Borghese coup, along with the probable complicity of the Confidential Affairs Bureau and high-placed generals, the chief of staff of the Italian Air Force, Sergio Duilio Fanali, and hot-tempered former South Navy commander, Giuseppe Rosselli Lorenzini. A veteran of fascist campaigns against the Spanish Republic and in Albania, Finale was extraordinarily high-placed as a fascist ideologue, and after retiring in 1971, he ended up heavily engaged in efforts to create a new political culture of the right in Europe that might take intellectual space from the left in public discourse. Meanwhile, Rosselli Lorenzini engaged in extremely reactionary efforts to destroy the political class of Italy. In one telling back-channel message from Ambassador Martin to Kissinger from April 1971, Martin recalls Rosselli Lorenzini insisting at a dinner on meeting with President Nixon to plead the case for more support for anti-communist activities. The next night, Martin has dinner with four other generals, including the chief of staff of the military, Enzo Marchesi, And Marchesi strenuously insists that Rosselli Lorenzini not be allowed anywhere near Nixon, restricting his access to his counterpart in the U.S., Admiral Zumwalt. So basically... Generals higher than Rosselli Lorenzini were trying to contain his strident political maneuvers, which is also reflected in the fact that he was passed over for promotion to the job of chief of staff by Andreotti himself when the latter became prime minister in 1973. Two things are important to note here. The reactionary figures high up in NATO command and the work of Andreotti in parrying their efforts to gain power through political office during the early 1970s. In AFSouth, in Naples, you had people like Rosselli Lorenzini as chief of staff of the Navy, you had fascist Admiral Gino Birindelli, who became his successor in 1970. Birindelli, as you may know from an earlier episode on the presidentialists, was an active member of the Lega Italia Unita, which was, of course, the umbrella group that provided legal cover for many of the groups that operated in tandem with the Rosa dei Venti. So, NATO's naval forces were effectively headed up by a fascist at that point. Meanwhile, in land south in Verona, you also had General Nardella at the Cywars Division, and of course you have Vito Micheli, who had taught at the NATO Defense College in Rome, which was at the time directed by the fascist air force general Fanali. All these guys appear to have been involved in the Borghese coup, which in its most advanced stage, according to a secret recording of Remo Orlandini, Borghese's right-hand man, involved the collaboration of NATO's naval forces out of Naples. Another Borghese collaborator, claimed that the Southern Europe Task Force, which started in Verona but moved to Vicenza in 1965, had encircled half of Rome before the coup was called off in the early hours of December 8th. This would be explosive if true, because CTAF is directly under the control of the United States Army, and at the time was under the leadership of Major General Robert E. Coffin, but Coffin's name rarely comes up in discussions about coup plots because he doesn't seem to have been particularly active politically, so that story is harder to believe than the complicity of NATO's naval fleet. Nevertheless, we should probably accept that some of the forces under CTAF were coup-friendly. At any rate, Micheli's efforts to cover up for the Borghese coup plotters were fairly successful, allowing the plotters to carry on and organize further plots. In 1971, after the failed Borghese coup, Ambassador Martin wrote to Kissinger about continued, quote, coup plotting, not directly, but peripherally connected with Borghese. So Martin had observed that, though the Borghese coup had failed, it seemed like others involved were starting to take up the torch, and he warned against, quote, consideration of accelerating their planning for a military takeover of the government, insisting, quote, I do not believe this plan can succeed. I conclude, therefore, that under these circumstances, the last thing we need is a half baked coup attempt. Adding to his complaints about the conspiratorial airs around certain generals, Ambassador Martin said that Kissinger's assistant, Al Haig, quote, Indicated awareness of Air Force and Navy restiveness when I talked with him and Chief General Micheli has made veiled references to White House representatives. The president has told me not to let the country drift further to the left. I don't intend to, but it just might make the job a bit easier if some better way could be devised to keep me personally informed of the bits and pieces which come to your attention here. So it seems like this 1971 missive about the half-baked coup might have brought Nixon and Kissinger to commence plans to replace Martin after the big elections the following year. So there are a lot of reasons to criticize Martin, particularly with regards to the distribution of millions of dollars to the right wing, but he's actually more liberal, it seems, than Nixon wanted him to be and more compliant, perhaps, than the CIA wanted him to be. He later admitted that he would have approved of a coup in the event of a Communist Party takeover, but such a takeover never happened, and it looks like he opposed any form of preventative coup from taking place. We might see in his frustration about coup efforts, and his dismissal of Rosselli Lorenzini, that he wasn't going all the way in supporting far-right power grabs. Thus. There's a ton of circumstantial evidence that Nixon and Kissinger were trying to light fires in Italy but didn't have in Ambassador Martin the guy who would completely fulfill their aims, and the CIA as an agency was even less interested. NATO's direction here was probably influenced also by Nixon's policies, but participation in coup plots seems to have been the heaviest in the NATO naval forces, the Italian National Air Force and Navy, and Lansau's Cy Wars division, whereas NATO had a lot of emissaries in Italy who had nothing to do with any of this. So now we know that there were secret clusters of reactionary military and secret services officers really driving this call for a coup, while US policy was hopelessly divided across at least 10 important splits. One, Between the center-left formula and the right-wing Christian Democrats. Two. Between operators and analysts that runs through both the CIA and State Department, where the analysts are more progressive. Three. Between the old guard and the younger people in the Foreign Service, where the younger are the more progressive. Four. Between the embassy in Rome and the consul in Naples, where the embassy is more progressive. Five between Nixon and his own State Department, where the State Department remained faithful to the center-left formula. Six, between Martin and the CIA, where Martin was more of a hardliner. Seven, between the CIA and the FBI, where the latter worked to serve Martin. Eight, between Kissinger and Martin, where Martin was less of a hardliner. Nine, between the De Lorenzo and Aloya factions of military intelligence, and 10, between Micheli and Maletti within the seed, where Maletti ultimately uncovered Michelli's complicity. We could add to that the division between the Italian Air Force and the general staff, as well as the divisions within the CTAF barracks in Vicenza, one outstanding question here is the involvement of the Gladio networks. These stay-behinds did still exist, albeit in very attenuated form, into the 1970s. Their remit was, of course, defending against an invasion, and experts like Aldo Gianuli, who advised the judicial inquiry into the coup plots of the early 1970s under Judge Salvini, found that Gladio wasn't really involved here. That's not to say that figures associated with the stay-behinds, like General Mastragostino, Agostino, for example, weren't engaged politically in coup efforts. But evidence hasn't been found linking the entity of the Gladio networks to the coups. The much more challenging and much larger story here is the legacy of fascism that was excluded from the outward-facing life of the Italian state while remaining deeply ensconced within its bureaucracy, police, forces, and armed services. The shame of fascism, mixed with the fascists' desire for a return to glory, created a volatile situation in which veterans of Mussolini's regimes sought to re-establish their proud place at the front of the nation." In a political climate of massive turmoil, labor unrest, the generation clash, and societal challenges within and against the Catholic Church, there were millions of Italians who sought a return to stability, if not the monarchy. In this political climate, even people who rejected fascism as a political system felt increasingly tempted to work with militant fascists in order to obtain some kind of stability. And the fascists, of course were there waiting for them, long knives in hand. So, back to Spiazzi, the mustachioed artillery major in Verona who looks a bit like a rough version of Freddie Mercury. When Spiazzi's involved in army intelligence, he serves under Michelli. When Michelli moves up the ladder to the head of the Seed, he took a pivotal place in the entity known as the Parallel Seed as well. This may have been the succession that brought Spiazzi into the command of the Rossereventi. Spiazzi's duties included evaluating the armed forces potential of other countries and granting security clearance to civilians and auxiliary military personnel. It was in the latter capacity that he's able to provide Cavallaro with the security clearance of a military magistrate. He also uses this position in the military to recruit conscripts and volunteers into the Rosareventi. One army conscript named Enzo Fara later claimed that Spiazzi had attempted to take him under his wing. Spiazzi told him about the Rosareventi and tried to get him to join. As well, Spiazzi used him as a courier to take secret messages to the organization's equivalent grouping in Trento. If you go back and check out the bonus episode on the Trento bombs, you can fill in this blank. But for these purposes, let's just say that this was mostly a carabinieri operation in which informants were actively participating in, and reporting back, bombing attacks against the extra-parliamentary group Lota Continua. However, Ferres stopped cooperating with authorities after his car was destroyed. Apparently as a warning. To the outside world, based on his military record, Spiazzi appeared to be a trustworthy military officer with a solid history in the armed services. Behind the scenes, of course, there were rumors that he's helping to smuggle guns from the military to subversive fascist groups like Ordine Nuovo. It is, of course, absolutely true that gun smuggling operations existed in northeast Italy within this milieu, In fact, none other than the fascist grenade attacker Gianfranco Bertoli had been involved in a mob-linked operation to smuggle guns to reactionary Catholic groups, which had been an early part of the psychological warfare operations discussed in the previous episode. Despite his incredible candor with investigators, however, Spiazzi contests the gun-running part, possibly because it would have put him on the hook for some more major crimes. Yet he doesn't contest the existence of Rosa de Venti as a secret network of mostly military men, including conscripts who were prepared to rise up against the state. Civil society groups existed within and outside of the network to give it public cover, but also to interface with right-wing social movements and members of the military. And... As the fact of having equivalent organizations in other regions like Trento might indicate, Rosareventi was not alone. Investigators discovered through Cavallaro's testimony that it was only the Verona branch, the 5th legion of a larger architecture of legions, called the Nuclei per la Defensa dello Stato, or what Cavallaro called Organization X. If you recall from episode 1, the first Nuclei per la Difesa dello Stato activity involved 2,000 letters sent to military officers around Italy in 1966, adamantly supported by the founder of the Order of Active Combatantism, Fascist General Angelo Mastro Agostino. So, this was an extensive network by 1973, but it's also very complicated. It appears then that the Nuclei per la difesa dello Stato was an independent secret organization that was developed by people involved in the parallel seed but possibly also semi-autonomous from it. Thus, the Rosa de Venti was a secret nucleus associated with other nuclei around Italy created after the Parco dei Principi meeting with roots in the parallel seed. It utilized a strategy known as the strategy of tension, in which the right would carry out terror attacks and then blame the left. Spiazzi's right hand man, Roberto Cavallaro, told the court, quote, Spiazzi told me more than once of the need to utilize the neo-fascist groups. He himself used to refer to cannon fodder or euphemistically to people who should be sacrificed. And while it wasn't particularly good at controlling the militants with whom it was associated, it provided him with a roof of collaborating law enforcement and officials of the secret services who could always get them off the hook and put investigators on the wrong track. Typically, this meant trying to blame the left anytime something happened in Italy in order to get people to become furious at the chaos and turned toward a state of order based in the Verona Montorio barracks, Spiazzi could convey crucial intelligence throughout the network and coordinate activities within networks in the armed services. And Spiazzi wasn't just an anodyne anti-communist by his own admission. He was both a monarchist and a fascist. Interestingly though, This meant that while he deeply respected Mussolini and the Italian Social Republic, which was supposedly a return to the pure radical and revolutionary core of the fascist idea, Spiazzi was actually in love with the idea of the Old Republic of Venice. I went into this a lot in the previous episode, but the Republic of Venice emerged as a real powerhouse in medieval Europe, fighting it out with the Duchy of Milan, extending as far west as Bergamo, before getting entangled in wars with the Ottomans, French, and Spanish. Verona became kind of like a bargaining chip, a crucial strategic hub that flipped to the Austrians at least twice before Italian independence and was early on controlled by forces close to the Holy Roman Empire. Now I've gone back and I've pored over Mussolini's collected works, and he goes on lengthy elucubrations about Renaissance history in reference to the Republic of Venice, but he's most interested in the Florentine Republic of Machiavelli. Obviously, Mussolini's is called Il Duce after the Condottieri that proliferated during the internecine squabbles between Italian states in the Renaissance and the medieval period. And he would encourage anyone to read Machiavelli's book, The Art of War. This is weird because while Machiavelli did raise a militia to defend the Florentine Republic from the Medici, everybody knows that he lost that fight and went into exile, His subsequent book, The Prince, can be read above all else as a satire on the total injustice of Medici rule dedicated to them by the author as a kind of backhanded compliment for their victory. So it looks to me like... When monarcho-fascists like Spiazzi gestured to the Italian Social Republic, they were really thinking of a republic in terms of the Republic of Venice that had ruled over Verona. And when they thought of Italy, they thought of an empire that would extend across the Alps to re-establish a confederacy of alliances and relations that might re-evoke what Mussolini thought of when he initially allied with the Nazis something like the Holy Roman Empire that linked central Europe to the Italian peninsula only actually under the hegemony of a kind of Italian federation of imperial republics in which the nobility would be restored to their prominent role in public life. While the military gave fascist corporatism, the muscle to take on the communist party, the unions and workers agitation. But on the side, on the practical side of things, Being a fascist meant that, unlike the reactionary liberals who refused to work with the fascists, Spiazzi could work quite closely with Ordine Nuovo, and by his own admission, brought the entire Veneto cell of the Ordine Nuovo militants into Rosa This would, of course, include the perpetrators of the Piazza Fontana bombing and those who had coached Bertoli before the massacre at the Milan Questura on May 17, 1973. Now this is fascinating for a lot of reasons. It seems that the Rosa and the National Movement of Public Opinion were interlocking assemblages that functioned in above and below ground capacity to provide a political posture for a conspiracy within the armed forces and secret services. And that puts Ordine Nuovo in the orbit of a former NATO psychological warfare general, which is of course grounds for all sorts of speculation. Indeed, former Ordine Nuovo militant Vincenzo Vinciguera left the organization after noting that the Eagle on its membership card started to resemble a little too much the NATO Eagle. But the relationship between Rosa de Venti and Ordine Nuovo was also complicated and involved working with the latter group's three-tiered compartmentalized hierarchy and its secret paramilitary section. See, Ordine Nuovo's structure involved supporters, adherents, and militants. Supporters were only invited to public meetings, adherents are only invited to public and semi-public meetings, and militants understood themselves as a monastic chivalric order of warrior elites. These militant cells were assembled in accordance with a honeycomb structure, in which each cell is cordoned off from the other, so that the group as a whole can function without full knowledge of the activities of the other cells. Only the leader of each cell would communicate with the leaders of other cells. In the Veneto, the Ordine Nuovo's leadership landed in, where else? Verona, and its leader was Carlo Maria Maggi, who was himself accountable to the leadership in Rome. Now, according to an associate named Ettore Malcangi. The demo doxology guru, Adriano Maggi Braski would sit in on Ordine Nuovo meetings in Verona and kept in touch with a number of militants from the organization. These meetings would mostly have had the auspices of study groups, Remember from the episodes on Ordine Nuovo that the group itself claimed that fascists needed to wait in the cup of the Holy Grail for the end of the Kali Yuga in order to remain pure and bring in that new age of fascism. So anyone going to the meetings would come away thinking that this group was basically a bunch of occult weirdos, but not necessarily a terrorist group. At the same time, if you attended more than one meeting... You were increasingly initiated into the secrets of the organization, which, once you're a militant, seemed to have involved a lot of weird mind-control techniques, including physical assaults verging on torture. Ordine Nuovo's social meetings would be held by the Veneto leader, Carlo Maria Maggi, at a local Verona pizzeria. These weren't exactly big public gatherings, but grew to involve an informal and somewhat intimate circle of friends, including none other than Amos Piazzi, Maji Braski, and a far-right terrorist named Carlo Fumigali, the head of the Movimento di Azione Rivoluzionaria. I already noted that Fumigali was close to Ordine Nuovo and that he boasted about meeting up with NATO generals in Verona and Rome. So it's not at all surprising that he and Spiazzi found one another. It does seem fascinating that Fumigali was perhaps not part of the Rosa dei Venti, but a different connected assemblages based in Milan and the Valtellina. So it comes to light that Spiazzi is tied to the Movimento di azione rivoluzionaria and that the Ordine Nuovo's entire Veneto chapter is intimately engaged in the Rosa dei Venti in Verona. And remember the National Movement of Public Opinion that was headquartered in the same place as the Arditi Italia. Well, Spiazzi's also close friends with the Arditi Italia head, the old fascist Berardini. One day, in fact, Spiazzi goes over to Berardini's house and puts up on the wall an emblem of a two-sided axe in a shield, the insignia of the Ordine Nuovo. So... The Rossereventi is coalescing in the early 1970s and drawing together a number of different organizations throughout Italy, particularly in Verona, where Spiazzi and the NATO psychological warfare general were based. Also around Liguria, where Casucci, the shark fighting Stahlhelm LARPer, was based. Here, it certainly seems that the nuclei for the defense of the state, the Nuclei per la Difesa dello Stato, had certainly congealed a formidable cross-section of far-right actors from Vilan to Verona to Naples, with support from elements within NATO and the US, which I'll get into soon. So, here's the timeline of what investigators found out most of which can be found in the third volume of Gianni Flamini's Partito del Golpe. It all starts with Nico Azzi, a member of the Ordine Nuovo connected to the Milan group La Fenice, or the Phoenix, who tried to pull a false flag on April the 7th, 1973. So yeah, Nico Azi walks through the train with this Lota Continua journal stuck out of his pocket, really prominently displayed. So he's giving out vibes that he's with the extra-parliamentary left, showing it off to everybody. And uh, he goes to the bathroom. When he's in the bathroom, he's trying to plant this bomb. But he gets confused, and the bomb goes off in his lap. So the whole idea was to frame the left for a terror attack, but, you know, he's seriously wounded, and everybody realizes this was a fascist plot. So that happens on April 7th. As a result, the silent majority protest in Milan the following week was banned by police, but it goes forward anyway with the contingent of fascists from Piazza San Babila. During this violent riot, policeman Antonio Marino was killed by a grenade thrown by the fascist Maurizio Morelli, leading to a huge uprising around the country. During this days-long uprising, an arson attack against the residents of the president of the Primavale section of the fascist M.S.E. party in Rome claimed the lives of his two sons. This killing by members of the left-wing group Potere Operaio likely triggered plans from the far right for retaliatory measures against the whole government which they believed was protecting those violent extremists. In late April of 1973, Spiazzi's on duty as an artillery major in the Verona barracks when he receives a phone call with an old military code that had gone out of use. He knew immediately that this was a call from a clique of military intelligence, Carabinieri and other interested individuals. Who else would use this outdated code at the same time the use of the outdated code indicates to researchers that this was a circle of friends who weren't part of official networks but worked in the interstices between power and authority the caller instructed him to raise some money for an operation that's going to be carried out by a group out of padua run by the old black legion war criminal eugenio rizzato According to a judicial reconstruction, the caller was an officer with the parallel seed. Some would later contend that the operation in question was the attempt against the Minister of the Interior, Mariano Rumor, at the Milan police headquarters the next month. So, the caller, presumably a member of the security services, orders Spiazzi to reach out to a guy named Dario Zagolin. Now, Zagalin has a real interest in the national movement of public opinion, but he's also super friendly with the Carabinieri. And here's where we once again step into the murky area of what it means to be an informant in the far-right subversive area. That's also closely tied to the secret services. And the line between informant and operative becomes very hazy. So, what they're doing as officers is sabrosa, and actively being monitored by others within their organizations. But, despite his appearance as an informant, here it looks like Zagolin proceeds to put Amospiazzi in touch with some known far-right financiers, including Giancarlo De Marchi, a member of the fascist party, the MSE, and one of Borghese's closest associates. But Spiazzi is an active member of the military, so this is a sensitive situation. Rather than go to the funders himself, Spiazzi sends his associate, Roberto Cavallaro. Cavallaro sets up a meeting with De Marchi at a hotel, and may have called in advance to check in at the hotel to make sure De Marchi's there. They say yes, but De Marchi slips away before Cavallaro could arrive. Apparently, he may have sensed a trap. There's an ongoing effort to obtain funds, but De Marchi is being difficult. He thinks that these pretentious terrorists with Ordin and Nuovo are incompetent idiots. He doesn't want to sink a bunch of money into another venture that's going to turn out like the Borghese coup or even worse. Five days later, Cavallaro turns up in the Montorio Veronese barracks under the name Roberto Rossi, as an expert on military justice under the auspices of Rosa So it's clear that Cavallaro and Spiazzi were starting to let the mask slip a bit. Rosa Reventi is a secret organization that was increasingly coming up to the surface through its ties in the national movement of public opinion and the military. And perhaps Cavallaro's appearance at the conference was an effort to organize in the barracks against the Republic under the auspices of some academic-sounding lecture. But here's the thing. The money still hadn't come through by early May. The Black Legion war criminal Eugenio Rizzato had allegedly sent a letter to Bertoli, who's on his way from Israel back to Italy. Again, this was ostensibly supposed to be intended for a major assassination against a left-leaning figure of the Christian Democrats, Marion Rumor, to be carried out on May 17th. But where was the money? So, Eugenio Rizzato, fascist war criminal, supposed inspector for a trade association tied to the national movement of public opinion, did not support the attack on Rumor without cash in hand, and De Marchi wouldn't let go of his money unless he could be convinced of the competence of the organization. No money, no assassination. How is the attack going to take place and the money isn't even there to begin with? Ritato must have spent a few nights at least secure in his conscience. But when a bomb went off in his window on May 14th, he finally changed his mind. Rizzato moves forward with the action, going to see Spiazzi all the way down in Calabria where the latter is conducting military drills. Rizzatto tells Spiazzi to contact Cavallaro and figure out what the hell is taking so long with the money for the operation. Apparently, he catches up with Cavallaro back in Verona and gets some of the 1 million lire that he needs. According to one reconstruction, Rizzato gets the money to Bertoli in accordance with Spiazzi's instructions, and the latter executes the action on May 17th. So while Bertoli always seemed like an individualist anarchist who had gone astray, a guy warped and demented through the underworld of mafiosi and fascist revolutionaries, it happens that those networks that were allegedly manipulating him had larger interests in mind. Anyway. This is the scenario provided by Flamini and given some substantial backing by Bale's research and further governmental inquiries. So let's unpack this. It's clear that Carlo Maria Maggi, the head of the Ordine Nuovo for all of Northeast Italy, and directly supervised the recruiting and handling of Bertoli. It's also clear that Maggi was associated with the Demodoxology guru Maji Braschi, and that Spiazzi boasted of bringing all the Verona cell of Ordine Nuovo into the Rosa de Venti. So all the networks coming together does make it seem like the attack on the Milan Questura was carried out by the Rosa de Venti structure in attempts to plant a false flag through which the left could be blamed for the assassination of a center-left minister, thus leading to a six-stage coup plan. What investigators ultimately find by piecing together all the loose ends is that Rosa de Venti comprised over 20 different organizations, including clandestine paramilitary groups with 87 senior officers at the top of its hierarchy, including each major military corps, along with the security services. The group had a plan That would unfold in six phases. First, they hope to create a crisis. Second, force the state of emergency. Third, block the reformation of a parliamentary coalition. Fourth, bring in the military. Five, start taking out some major left-wing public figures. And six, rounding up about 1624 people in all. The coup was planned for June 2nd, 1973, but a major event had to take place first. Presumably, Bertoli had to assassinate Minister Rumor a couple of weeks ahead of time to prepare the grounds for a backlash. After this event, there would have been the eruption of partisan activity in the Valtellina in the Northwest in the style of civil war actions. This would have contributed to the pressure against the government adding to the need for a state of emergency. The June 2nd coup did not end up going off, according to Cavallaro's testimony, because someone made a, quote, false move. This seems like it's blaming Bertoli for failing to carry out the mission and assassinate Rumor, and it's basically all downhill from there. A week later, Spiazzi again sends Cavallaro to try to connect with De Marchi, who lives over in Liguria, in the city of Genoa, close to La Spezia, where the Stahlhelm doctor Casucci lives. Cavallaro goes to Genoa with Rampazzo and Risato, and they wait around. There's a preliminary meeting on June 10th, and then another meeting is supposed to take place, but there's a delay. They get bored, kind of anxious. They stop over at Casucci's island guest house so that they can get their bearings on this side of the operation. Finally, the meeting does go through. In the meeting in De Marchi's study in a posh coastal district of Genoa, the fascist lawyer is agitated and angry. He reams out Cavallaro, saying that Ordine Nuovo terrorists are a bunch of incompetent fools who can't do anything. He specifically mentions Nico Azi's notorious blunder with the bomb blowing up in his lap, indicating that this may have also been plotted by the Rosa de Venti or its corresponding structure in Milan. This is an intense meeting for Cavallaro, but he does end up securing more funding for Rosa de Venti. The next month, the Organization of Active Combatantism convenes a national meeting in the Verona area on the banks of Lake Garda. Present here are Major Spiazzi and General Nardella, together with De Marchi, and members of the Movimento di Azione Rivoluzionaria. I tend to think that this meeting was for the purposes of regrouping. The coup plot had to be put off after the setback. Perhaps it is also at this point that Porta Casucci is inspecting the contents of the bag left at his place by Rampazzo, becoming increasingly anxious. Two months later, the pair go to Germany to the international Stahlhelm gathering. And a few weeks after that, Kasucci finally goes to the cops. After Rampazzo and Sedona are arrested, then you get Cavallaro. Authorities then issue arrest warrants for nine more people, including Eugenio Rezzato, the F- Genoese fascist lawyer Giancarlo De Marchi, and of course, the next year, Spiazzi is arrested. After a search of his home, they confirm his involvement in Nuro The day before his arrest, he'd actually been meeting with leaders of the National Movement of Public Opinion, the Silent Majority, and the Movement of Revolutionary Action. Soon, a warrant is issued for Nardella, but he flees, first to Carlo Fumagalli's place in Milan and from there to Sanremo, not-so-lucky is Narodella's successor at NATO's psychological warfare command in Italy, Colonel Rolando Caccia Dominioni, who gets pulled into the dragnet. Their cohort, Dario Zagolin, also eludes arrest, probably due to his close ties to the Carabinieri. As the investigation proceeds, the magistrate Giovanni Tamburino becomes increasingly concerned going so far as to write to the president of the republic to alert him to, quote, the gravity of some facts that emerged during the criminal proceedings. Tamburino notes his findings, quote, from various evidential sources, the existence of an occult organization composed of elements belonging to the armed forces has been indicated, in clear contrast with the rules and principles of the current constitution. Interestingly, as the investigation was going through, in October, Ambassador Martin is moved to Saigon. This switch was obviously pretty symbolic of the Nixon administration's view of Italy, and many within the CIA maintain this understanding of Italy as almost on the level of Vietnam, and certainly of Chile. Ambassador John Volpe was subsequently brought in, Volpe had been one candidate favored over Martin in the first place. He actually spoke Italian, first of all, and he was well-respected in Italy. He came from the earlier school of State Department thinking, that you had to seriously contend with the ideas of communism rather than just trying to physically destroy it. One of the first things that Volpe did was to cut off the funding that had been streaming in for the three years between 1970 and 1973. The sequence of arrests that rocked Italy got the attention of Ambassador Volpe, who sent a cable back to D.C. Quote, Lieutenant Colonel Amos Piazzi, officer of the artillery unit stationed in Verona, arrested January 13th for subversive association directed against the state. Spiazzi's arrest is tied in with judicial investigation proceeding against extra-parliamentary neo-fascist organization Rosereventi. The existence and extravagant plots of this fringe group for a fascist coup involving the elimination of a long list of prominent public figures, even including far right MSC party chief Almirante, were discovered in late October and led to the arrest of several persons in Genoa, Parua, and Viareggio, including a Genoa MSC provisional counselor. The significance of Colonel Spiazzi's arrest. Reportedly the first such arrest for subversion since World War II involving a high-ranking military officer is that it fuels the campaign of the left-wing press warning of the existence of neo-fascist influence and sympathizers in the police, armed forces, and foreign ministry, and arguing the need to root them out. Extra-parliamentary left groupings like Lota Continua are already carrying this argument one step further. And, like the ITT bombers in Rome, November 11, contending that right-wing plotting directly involves the U.S., in this case through Italy's NATO link. The embassy is preparing an airgram report on the activities of the extraparliamentary right and on the government's increased willingness in recent months to crack down on them. The Volpe cable gives us an indication of how the top brass of the United States State Department viewed the continued intrigue within Italy. Firstly, Volpe seems surprised at Spiazzi's brashness, noting that it was the first such case since the war. Secondly, he makes a point to note that the whole plot would have gone after the head of the fascist party, the Italian social movement, Giorgio Almirante, something I don't think that that fascist leader realized. On top of that, he seems perturbed by the whole thing, viewing the machinations of the far right as playing into the hands of the extra-parliamentary left by confirming their suspicions. And above all else, he seems to think that this confirmation will only lead to further speculation about the US's role, which, as you can tell from his cable, seems minimal, at least on his level. In truth, though, spiazzi is small potatoes. As Volpe indicates, the NATO psychological warfare commanders are much bigger, much more inconvenient fish. But the real catch in the investigation into Rosso is General Vito Micheli himself, who's arrested and put in a car to Padua. On the way, he pretends to be sick in order to get transferred to a military hospital an ingenious move that actually helps him throw the investigation off course for some time. In the middle of the fray is Giulio Andreotti, the man clearly favored by many in the U.S. to lead a strong center-right majority in Italy. Some claim that Andreotti is deeply involved in the coup efforts to the point of being their secret master. Others claim that, beginning as Minister of Defense, with piano solo, he was simply using the threat of coups to increase tensions and then posture as the hero who releases the tensions. By doing this, he would theoretically be able to assert the moderate bona fides of the center right while consolidating power away from the center left. But This is also very elaborate and somewhat unlikely strategy that exists as an interesting speculation without a whole lot of proof. For sure... Andreotti would later be connected with the mob and all sorts of secret nefarious dealings. But in this case, we seem to have something more here. According to Spiazzi's right-hand man, Cavallaro, the Rosa dei would fall under what he called Organization X, which had backing in the state such that, rather than call it a corpo di stato, they should call it corpo stato, or a coup by the state rather than a coup of the state. For Cavallaro, this organization, which seems to fit the description of Nuclei per la difesa dello Stato, existed in the state of golpe permanente, through which the constant menace of a coup would suffice to blackmail enough people into compromising with the far right. This is also basically the conclusion that Gianni Flamini comes very close to making that the Rosa de Venti was a sort of palace coup for Andreotti through which the center-right could maintain control over the Italian government. To me, it seems like using the coup efforts in this way certainly was what Andreotti was doing but for it to have been planned that way would have involved the persistent throwing under the bus of all the heads of military intelligence from De Lorenzo to Michelli, without Michelli himself actually learning from his predecessor's downfall. It also bears noting that the people who attempted the coup plots certainly hoped to carry them out, so aside from throwing some of the most important members of the state under the bus, this strategy would have also involved convincing them that the plans were real and not a sophisticated trap that Cavallaro, an Ursat's military magistrate in his twenties, could have figured out after just a year or two of participation in the network. It stands to reason that people like Rizzato and Rombazzo, not to mention Michelli and Nardella or Finalli would have similarly figured out that the coup efforts were just smoke and mirrors for an ambitious Christian Democrat politician if that were the case. I doubt that they would have signed up if they knew that they'd both be fully disgraced at the end of it. It does seem to me like there were intelligence agencies involved in the coup plots for sure. However, it also seems to me like, at least in the Borghese example, they pulled the rug out at the last moment in the fashion of a drug bust in which the money must change hands before evidence of intent can be confirmed. As for the Bertoli attack, it seems in this case like Michelli would likely have known about this attack ahead of time, and the assassination was thwarted not by some last-minute intervention attributable to a triumph of state security, but due to the major incompetence of the maniac with a grenade. The plot wasn't unraveled in the end by Andreotti, but by investigating magistrates with a huge amount of guts. Some of Andreotti's closest associates were the ones who appear most responsible for supporting the coup, but when those coup efforts fell to pieces in supporting Maletti against Michelli and in refusing to elevate Rosselli Lorenzini, Andreotti actually helped stifle further efforts. So, whether or not Andreotti wanted to use the attacks for his own purposes, it appears that those involved in them were motivated by sincere intentions to overthrow the Republic, whereas his own motivations might have been more opportunistic. As to the involvement of the US Secret Services, simply put, by giving money to Micheli, the Nixon administration helped the parallel seed that was trying to overthrow the Republic, but the existence of that network was also baked into the Italian Republic from its inception and was a direct symptom of a government fostered by an occupying power after the fall of a totalitarian state. It seems to me that the efforts of the Communist Party's propaganda machine at the time portrayed this as the essential fault of the allied occupiers who allowed back into crucial positions in the armed services many officers who had served under Mussolini, and then turned towards the Allies after the armistice. They weren't completely wrong here, and a kind of detente strategy with the Cold War in Italy during the 1960s by the Kennedy and Johnson administrations was not a bad call. But the reality is that there were a ton of fascists in Italy, and there were a fair amount of cold warriors in the old guard of the U.S. Foreign Services. It doesn't seem to me like the U.S. as a whole was trying to bring Italy under its imperial control so much as it seems like a lesson in the ideological ties that bound cold warriors to one another, desperately trying to prevent communist takeovers even by draconian measures. As to the investigations following those high-profile arrests, there was an effort after the discovery of Rosa de Venti to open up investigations and bring together the Bertoli investigation, the Borghese investigation, and the Rosareventi investigation under one roof. However, for this to work, the ambitious magistrates had to stay in place. As Judge Tamburino started bringing these characters before the court to tell their story, the press tore him to shreds, calling him the Trento Savonarola, rigid as a rhinoceros, and so forth. It is true that he was a little bit brazen and quite ambitious in his theories, but as a result of the campaign, the carefully pieced together story was transferred to another judge who was far more conducive to the status quo. Over the course of numerous subsequent interrogations, Spiazzi revealed that, quote, in the seed meetings of the I officers, an ever closer collaboration was requested with weapons associations, with existing political associations, such as the Friends of the Armed Forces, the Polio Institute that put on the Parco de Principi conference, the Order of Active Combatantism, etc., to unify forces into an active work of defense, support them, and propagandize in favor of the armed forces and the values represented by them. The Nuclei per la Defesa dello Stato was part of this effort, bearing a two-tiered structure. The first tier involved the aforementioned military and paramilitary structures called the security branch. And the second lower tier was called the organization of support and of propaganda. The national movement of public opinion, Spiazzi stated, quote, was one of the most valid aggregating elements involved in the second lower tier for propaganda. On this level, Spiazzi said that he became Nardella's right-hand man, trying to promote the ideas of the armed services among civil society and linking together different public-facing groups and publications. While well, Spiazzi admitted to bringing the Verona cell of Ordine Nuovo into the Rosa dei Venti and confessed that he knew that the 1969 bombing of the Agricultural Bank in Verona prior to the Piazza Fontana bombing had been carried out by that cell. He insisted that the Rosa de Venti itself was innocent of such attacks. It was, in his opinion, a legal structure aimed at promoting the armed services. That, however, does not explain that bag left by Rampazzo at Porta Casucci's, which had a clear action plan and a list of people to be captured. It also doesn't explain why so many people caught up in the Rosa de Venti plot, people like Giancarlo de Marchi, had also been involved in the Borghese coup. Neither does it explain the fact that Michelli had openly admitted to there being a parallel seed structure tied to the Rosa de Venti, with the claim that it, too, had been completely legal. In 1983, while the Rosa de Venti trial was still going on, a list of members of the Propaganda Due renegade Masonic lodge was discovered in the villa of its leader Licio Gelli. The list included some of the crème de la crème of the Italian Republic along with some key reactionaries tied up in the expansive plotting. Among them were Sicilian reactionary Prince Aliata, Admiral Birindelli of the Lega Italia Unita, and even Micheli himself. I've seen claims that Nardella and De Marchi were also in p but could not independently verify that. While P2 appears to have been a rather extensive and powerful network of political, financial, and media figures in Italy during the 1970s, the fact that a number of cousters ended up on this list is problematized by the fact that none other than General Maletti was also a member so the man who helped bring down Michelli was a part of the same subversive network. At the same time, Meletti would also go down for covering up the facts of the Piazza Fontana case and facilitating the escape of key witnesses and suspects before fleeing himself to South Africa. The following year, ten years after the arrests, in 1984, after a lengthy and tumultuous trial, the defendants were acquitted by the Appeals Court of Rome on the same infamous grounds that the alleged Piazza Fontana perpetrators and others would be let off the hook. Perché il fatto non sosiste? Because the facts do not exist or are not sustainable based on the evidence. But Spiazzi didn't exactly walk free. He was basically in and out of jail all the time for other massacres, which I'll get into in further episodes. Always with the Rosa dei venti looming over his head. For his part, former director of the military intelligence, Vito Micheli, was actually able to get off scot free as well, having in the meantime become a parliamentarian with the MSE, the fascist party. So, that's the story of the Rossereventi, a regional network of military, paramilitary, and civil society groups based in Verona and tied to a secret network of reactionary military figures around Italy known as the Nuclei per la Difesa dello Stato, which prosecuted a semi clandestine anti communist campaign grounded in psychological warfare strategies introduced by the Americans in the 1940s but informally revived by the influx of millions of dollars from the Nixon administration to dismantle the center-left formula. The Nuclei per la Defesa dello Stato involved veterans groups like the Order of Armed Combatantists and the Stahlhelm in its security structure, as well as organs like the National Movement of Public Opinion in its lower-tier propaganda structure. By drawing in Ordine Nuovo in Verona, though, Rosa de Venti was directly tied through its members to the deployment of Gianfranco Bertoli and his subsequent massacre on the streets of Milan. It is therefore clear that while groups like the Ordine Nuovo, the Parallel CID, and the Nuclei per la Difesa dello Stato were all different organizations with independent actors and often conflicting goals, a broader anti communist milieu had fostered a condition of impunity for fascist terror and a ripe environment for different coup plots, each with their own leading figures, goals, and characteristics. And one major effort, the white coup of Edgardo Sogno, was still in the offing, even after the arrests around the Rosa de Venti. But we'll have to wait for another episode of the Years of Lead pod, as the strategy of tension continued to fall apart under the conditions that its own proponents had set into place. Thank you very much for listening. If you liked this episode and others, please give us a five-star rating on the platform of your choice and sign up on the Patreon, where I've just put up some maps, uh, we have other bonus episodes, and I'm going to be putting up more data and so forth in the future. So... Thank you so much for listening. (laughs) Ciao.